Tuning into the 480th episode of Barbershop Sports Talk with me, your host, Daryl D. Lane. As always, wherever you are, however you're listening, I thank you for making me in this show part of your day, whether via Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Air Radio, SoundCloud, Pandora, whichever podcasting app or platform you may be listening to me via. Being recorded from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, per the new usual, going to have a great podcast for all you guys today. Going to have Ryan Abraham on, owner slash publisher of USCFootball.com. We talk about USC football, their offense. Uh, him being a Heisman voter as well, some of his favorite Heisman picks, how he goes through the Heisman voting process, and also college football expansion and USC heading to the Big Ten. Now, before we get to that conversation, I'm going to give my shameless plug as always. First time listener, thank you, but subscribe and follow right now. Also, share this podcast with your friends and family, whether via Reddit threads, Facebook groups, etc., etc. Check on the description below, specifically if you use Spotify. I have everything timestamped. You can click on the timestamp and we'll send you to whichever part of the podcast you would most like to listen to. Follow me on Twitter at nighttrend underscore lane. And also subscribe to my YouTube channel. Just type in Daryl Lane. You will find that I post two to five minute clips of this podcast right here as well as my syndicate show outside the shop. And lastly, if you have Apple or iTunes, give me five stars and a great review. For some odd reason, right? If you want the pod, then don't say anything because you know what your mama told you. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all. So everybody always likes to preach patience. Uh, And I think it's a good thing to preach patience in life and in sports. Uh, I think you should be patient with young children. When I was subbing in the Buffalo uh, public school system, I worked with pre-K all the way to fourth grade. And you had kids bullying each other, kids thinking they're adults, kids being silly, kids unable to focus. Uh, kids being immature, being mad because somebody didn't want to play with me. So you have to be patient and realize they're kids. Some of them are still pooping their pants. Some of them have disabilities. Some of them, uh, you know, aren't personalities are, aren't even formed yet, right? So it's like you have to realize that you can't expect too much. It's not like you're dealing with adults and you're around people who are... Uh, at a different stage of life, like when I coached wrestling and my alma mater Amherst, and I was dealing with 14 to 17 year old young men. A lot different from dealing with pre K to fourth grade. 14 to 70 year olds, 14 to 17 year olds, right? Have a life more figured out. Not completely, but more figured out. You know, their personalities are kind of fully developed. They're not pooping their pants. They don't need you to hold their hand every second of the day. They're not crying because somebody didn't give them a hug. So it's. A lot easier to deal with, and I can take time. I can have less patience because I expect more of them. Right? Like when I tell a high school kid, I want you to do this X, Y, and Z, and I need you to do it this way, and they're like, Yeah, I got it. And then if they don't know what they're supposed to do and they don't ask me, then I can kind of snap on them a little bit differently than I would with a uh, first grader who maybe just didn't get what I was saying or was too complicated, right? So, based off of the level of person you're dealing with, you should have a different level of patience, right? Like people, you'll have patience more for somebody who's elderly, 95 years old, 95 years old, right? If they uh, do something or they're not as quick-witted or with something, as opposed to if it's a 25-year-old. And when it comes to sports, and particularly in the NFL with quarterbacks, I think we always should have patience. Uh, 
a lot of these guys, and they're in college offenses that aren't as complicated. They're not having to make the level of reads. They're not having to deal with the speed of the game. Uh, consistently in college football, you're having to deal with quarterbacks having to look at the sideline, right? So it's just a completely different world in general where it's less complicated, more free-flowing, not as much mental stress and preparation, and the athletes you're going against aren't as big, fast, and strong, physical, and smart. So when that quarterback does make the jump to the NFL, you should have patience because there's going to be ups and downs, right? Like, we didn't see Aaron Rodgers' ups and downs because he was a backup to Brett Favre from three years. We didn't see Patrick Mahomes' ups and downs because he was a backup to Alex Smith for a year. We saw Josh Allen's ups and downs. Josh Allen was not good his first year in the NFL. Peyton Manning was an interception machine his first year in the NFL. Tom Brady couldn't even start his first year in the NFL, and everybody calls Tom Brady the GOAT. So you need to be patient with these guys. They're young. They're learning. They're still developing. And that's how I usually feel with it, right? But then we have the Trey Lance situation in San Francisco, and everybody's like, oh my God, give Lance time. He's young. He needs to develop. And it's like, let's get to the situation I'm talking about, folks. You can only have patience when there's patience allowed in the situation. There's patience allowed when they're the New York Jets, you've been an abominable franchise, you're not trying to get to the playoffs. You're not trying to win a Super Bowl right now. You're just trust, just trying to grow and develop with your young quarterback, Zach Wilson, your young wide receiver, Garrett Wilson. Same for Jacksonville. You're not trying to win anything in Jacksonville with Trevor Lawrence. You're just trying to grow and build something. Justin Fields, Chicago Bears, you're not trying to win a Super Bowl in Chicago right now with Justin Fields. You're trying to grow and develop, build a young roster to eventually comp compete, to build up to that point. With Trey Lance and San Francisco 49ers, you are trying to win a Super Bowl. I believe that the San Francisco 49ers have the most talented roster in the NFL. George Kittle, top five tight end. They have a top five offensive line, top 10 offensive line with guys like Trent Williams there. Kyle Shanahan, top three play call in the sport, top 10 head coach in the game. A bunch of running backs like Elijah Mitchell, Jeff Wilson, a bunch of guys they can give the ball to and rotate. The weapons of the receivers, Brandon Ayuk, Rashad Jennings, uh, Debo Samuel. You go to the defensive line, guys like Eric Armstead and Nick Bosa, all pro to Pro Bowl caliber players, a deep defensive line, linebackers like Fred Warner, good safeties, solid corners. They have it all. D'Amico Ryans, who's probably going to be a head coach, he's their defensive coordinator, who's probably going to be a head coach soon top-tier defensive coordinator. So the Niners are trying to win a Super Bowl right now. They're trying to get to the playoffs and compete right now. They're not trying to hold a quarterback's hand and be like, oh, Trey, we need you to develop. It's okay if you throw picks. It's okay if we lose a game to Chicago. Even though it was in a monsoon that we should win, but now we lost, right? You can just develop. That's not how it is. It's go time. We were just in the NFC Championship game last year. We were in the Super Bowl about two years prior to that, and this year we're trying to win a Super Bowl. And by the way, your backup is the guy who got us to the Super Bowl and the NFC Championship game, and he's actually better than you. So when Trey Lance has a zero touchdown three pick game, forgive me that I'm like, maybe you should pull it. Maybe you shouldn't have that level of patience. Because you want to know what? Debo Samuel's in his prime. George Kittle's in his prime. Trent Williams is in his prime. Nick Bose is in his prime. Eric Armstead is in his prime. Fred Warner's in his prime. These guys just aren't here to grow and develop. They've already done that. They're past that phase. All right? <laughs> They're past that phase. 
It's college now. We don't need lockers. We don't need lockers. We don't need hall monitors. We don't need to get detention if we're late to class. We're past that. We're in college now. We're young adults. 18 plus. We can make our own decisions, right? If you don't go to class, guess what? You fail. Good luck. I'm not calling mommy and daddy to see, oh, what's wrong with little Jimmy? Same with Trey Lance. It's time to win for a franchise that's had a lot of historical success in the NFL. Right now, every game they lose, that's another game that puts them back in the chance to have home field advantage throughout the playoffs. That's the way Kyle Shanahan views it. That's the way John Lynch views it. That's the way the 49ers organization views it and should view it. This isn't like, oh, we can be 7-10. and 10. Trey Lance is really getting better. That is not how the game's played. With what the 49ers are working with. It's how the game's played with the Bears. I'm sure if you told the Bears, Justin Fields really took a step forward. We know he's our quarterback of the future. But we were 5-11. and 11. The Bears would be happy. If you tell that to Kyle Shanahan, he's like, what the F? This is not what we signed up for. So that's what Trey Lance is fighting against. And that's just the fact of the matter. Now cut him next out of the break on Barbershop Sports Talk. We're going to have Ryan Abraham on the show. Cut him next out of the break on Barbershop Sports Talk. The NFL's opening week was action-packed, and it's just getting started. Get ready for a week two of touchdowns, big plays, and even bigger wins with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. This week, new customers can bet just $5 on any football game and get $200 in free bets instantly. One more action. Everyone can experience the thrill of DraftKings' early win promotion. It's simple. This Sunday, bet on any NFL team. That's right, any NFL team to win. If your team leads by 10 at any point during the game, you get paid instantly. Even if your team loses. Sounds like a pretty good deal, folks. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code TPPN and get $200 in free bets instantly when you place a $5 bet on any football game. That's code TPPN only at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Oh, we're back with the Barbershop Sports Talk, and we have Ryan Abraham with us, owner and publisher for USCFootball.com and Heisman Trophy voter. How you doing, man? I'm doing all right. It's, uh, I can't believe we're two weeks into the college football season already, but here we are, and uh, it's a lot different. A year, I think it was a year ago, today or about today, when Clay Hill got fired. So the, the fortunes of the USC football team significantly different than that, what they were uh, just a year ago. If I told you back then that you were going to have Lincoln Riley as your coach, what would you have said? <laughs> yeah, no way. Like, oh, sure, that doesn't make much sense, but it's crazy. Uh, just, the, you know, being out there and talk with him and the players and how different the team looks and being, a, you know, AP number seven, you know, very, very different than going four and eight uh, in 2021. So what's been your thoughts about USC this season so far? Obviously, you got a couple few blowouts against Stanford. Uh, how do you feel about the team right now? They look really good. And I think it just shows how ready this team was. I mean, it's, if you're looking at the blue blood programs are blue blood for a reason because they have a lot of advantages, that, you know, either historical or, you know, current, you know, just being in Los Angeles having the history with the Heismans and the national championships and all that stuff, you almost just 
not have to screw it up. And just to bring in a head coach and for one year go from a team that was four and eight to, you know, a team that's definitely on a trajectory to win 10 games, you know, and uh, it, that's to me is it's all about coaching. I think, you know, in the NFL, players are really important and good college coaches get great players. That is certain, but a lot of it is just how you prepare young 18, 19, 20-year-old guys to go and do battle every week. And just watching what Lincoln Riley's done, even if he didn't turn the roster over, I think this team would be significantly better. But you couple the fact that he brings in a winning culture, he has a, a winning scheme on offense, it's just it's just the way it flows, it's amazing. And then obviously you bring in great players, uh, mostly from a transfer portal. You put all that together, and this is a team that looks like a favorite in the Pac-12, you know, two weeks in, which is it was kind of crazy. But it's just an indication of if you hire a good coach, you're going to have good things happen more often than not. And, you know, we'll see. They're, they're, they're a flawed team, just like most teams in the country. But it's so much better. They're in such a better, on such a better trajectory than they were a year ago. It's, it is night and day, as the cliche goes. So it, it's pr- been pretty crazy to watch. What would you say is the ceiling for USC right now, for this year? I mean, people are mentioning going to the playoff, like sneaking in at number four. And I, I don't think, to be fair, like I don't think this is a playoff quality, you know, caliber kind of team. But they could get there, like because they're going to probably be favored in every game on their schedule. Uh, you know, maybe at Utah they won't be. They, you know, they got Fresno State this weekend. They got a tough one going to Oregon State. But the way they can score points. I mean, say they go 11-1 and one, and then they win the Pac-12 championship over like a Utah or something. I mean, you're probably going to be in the playoff at that point. You're probably going to be like the number four seed. Like, USC's going to get some benefits of the doubt. I think they're, you know, at least a year or two away from like making a run at something like that. Like being, you know, a player in the playoffs. Like they probably get trucked by a Georgia or Alabama or something in the first round. But to go from like four and eight to like, like a legit shot at making the playoffs is kind of crazy. Um, but I, I feel like that's the ceiling. They got to have some things go right for sure. But if they just take care of business, which you know the way this offense is scoring, they can. Um, I don't see why they couldn't. You know, I, and I definitely didn't think that going into the season. But it's a combination of USC's good. Like they're a really good team right now. Not that good on defense, but they're opp- opportunistic and they force turnovers, which is great. And they can score a lot of points. And you can do that. You can win a whole bunch of games. And I think that's what the USC is capable of doing this year. What do you think they need before they can realistically compete on that level with the Alabamas, the Georgias, the Ohio States? The offense is there. Like, if you have Caleb Williams throw to Jordan Addison, Mario Williams, and Travis Dye running the rock and all that, it'll be more about building depth and building it from the high school ranks instead of the transfer portal. They need, you know, the offensive line is actually good, but they're not real deep, so they're going to lose a bunch of guys this year. So kind of shoring some of that stuff up. Uh, defensively, definitely more playmakers. You know, getting, you know, they, they lead the, the Pac-12, but they have 20 tackles for loss. They have eight turnovers they forced. I mean, it's crazy the amount of huge plays this defense has made, but they're giving up a lot of yards too. So I think shoring that up and, you know, just having some more depth there and some, you know, star players on defense. They, they, they hit the transfer portal for stars on offense. Some good players on defense, but not really like those superstars. You get some bona fide superstars on the defense side of the ball, and I think you can be there. I think it'll be, you know, getting a stout defensive line, 
that you can do a lot with and behind if you only have four guys, you know, rushing the quarterback or staying in the, the rush lanes. I think that's where you could take the biggest step. The offense is pretty much there. Uh, the defense, though, is where you're going to need some work. Now, we've seen, you know, Alabama have great defenses and give up a whole bunch of points in the playoffs. Like, you're going to, you need to score points. So, just getting the defense to be, uh, you know, a little better, I think would help a lot. But offensively, they, they look like they're really close if they're not there already. You think USC's offense is the best in the country? I don't, I mean, it's funny. As far as the numbers go already, I mean, statistically, they're two or three, whatever, but you've only played two games. So one of them was a, a road game and, and conference opponent. But, you know, you thought Ohio State was going to be amazeballs, right? And uh, they didn't look that good against Notre Dame, who just lost to, yeah. to Marshall. <laughs> um, you know, Georgia, did you, you, you want to count out Stetson Bennett? Like, a, he's just like a system manager guy, but, you know, they've looked really good. Like, if you look at the teams that have a whole bunch of talent, and a really good quarterback. You go with Alabama, you go with Georgia, you know, Ohio State. Like, those teams, I think USC would be in the conversation with, but you could say that each one of those offenses are better. But, like, outside of that, I don't know. I mean, who's, you know, you know Texas A&M brings in, like, the number one recruiting class in the world that we've ever seen, and they lose to Appalachian State, you know. So, I feel like they're they're up there. They're, they're a top three or four offense, I think, in the country just already. We'll see if they can keep that up. But the way they're going now, they went five drives in the first half, scoring five touchdowns, and they didn't even face a third down. Like not a single third down through you know the, that those through those five drives. It's just really efficient. I think eight point six yards per per play, which is like second in the country. Um, some pretty impressive numbers from this offense so far. What do you think makes a Lincoln Riley offense unique from other offenses? I don't know about unique. I mean, I feel like coaches kind of steal from each other, and he's learned a lot of air raid concepts from Mike Leach and, and guys like from that tree. But I think the thing that's different, at least from other USC offenses that we've seen, is they just would rely on great players to make amazing plays. Like if you watched USC's offense last year, Drake London would be double or triple covered, you know, and they would still throw it to him, and he would still catch the ball. And it, I don't know what his route was. I don't know if they just were like, oh, he's going somewhere. A whole bunch of people are on him. We're going to throw the ball and he'll make the catch anyway. Like, you're watching some of the way that he sets up one play with another. The RPO game, you know, having a, a quarterback that's mobile, like in, a, in the opener, Caleb Williams ran for 68 yards. We were going back in history trying to find a USC quarterback that's done that. And I don't, I don't know when the last time it happened. It didn't happen this century. I don't think Reggie Perry, who was in the early 90s, ever did that. Uh, Rodney Pete, who finished second in the Heisman Trophy voting, he never ran for 68 yards. Like, just the first game, he runs for a number that I don't know we've, if we've ever seen a USC quarterback do that, at least in the last, at least the last 50 years, you know. Uh, and so I think it just, it's an offense that you can run the ball, you can be balanced. Um, you can run stuff off the RPOs. You can, you know, throw deep to wide receivers. You can throw quick stuff to the wide receivers. It just gives you a lot of options. And there's a lot of cool misdirection plays where everything looks like it's going one way and the play actually goes to the other. And it, it, I think it does a nice job of getting your playmakers in space somewhere and then letting them make a play. As opposed to, like, relying on, you know, you're, you're not relying on Jordan Addison's speed to get them open. But 
you're going to scheme him open, get him the ball, and then if he's going to break a tackle and, and, and run for a touchdown like a 75 yarder like he had, uh, you know, in the Stanford game against probably the best corner in the Pac-12 in Caillou Blue Kelly, like he just burned him. And uh, that's kind of stuff. It's just I think there's a unique aspects to it, at least from what we've seen around here at USC. But you know, spread. RPO kind of stuff, you know, area contest, but they do like to reduce tight ends. They do like to run the football. So, you know, sort of a hybrid of some of those other offenses you may have seen. So for you being out, you know, in L.A. in the West Coast, right, and really following like USC in the Pac-12, and then you see, you know, other conferences like the SEC, right? You have Georgia play Oregon. Oregon, you know, the last 10 or 15 years, they've been one of the best teams in the Pac-12, not the best team in the Pac-12 over that span. And then you see a Georgia team who most people, I don't even think, are predicting them, you know, they're the reigning champs to win their own conference. And then you see them just destroy Oregon. So how big of a gap do you think it is between, like, the SEC and other conferences, or even the SEC and the Pac-12? Well, the, the Utah game at Florida is, is definitely the Pac-12 triple on the chain. So I really like the way Utah's been playing. Uh, I think they're a legit team. I think they can be tough and physical. They had a lot of stuff go wrong. But the, at the end of the day, you end up losing to a Florida team that lost last week to Kentucky. You know, they're a decent SEC team. But you were supposed to be, Utah's supposed to be the best team in the Pac-12. And I know they're playing the swamp. I know it was like a million degrees and humid and stuff. But um, and it was a really competitive game. And like 10 things could have happened and Utah won that game. But they lost. And, you know, Oregon, not just losing, but just getting embarrassed. Um, you know, that's a first-year head coach who looked like a first-year head coach uh, in that one. So as much as we talk about, well, Oregon could be this or what Stanford was good, Unfortunately, you know, USC's been down for the last 10, 15 years. They'll pop up and win a Rose Bowl every once in a while. But outside of that, it's just not, you know, Oregon's not been able to carry the torch. You know, there, there's only one flag bearer in the Pac-12, and that's USC. So now that they're coming back, I think you can get some respectability in the conference um, with USC back. Unfortunately, for the Pac-12, they're only going to be around two years, you know. So um, you're counting down the, the games until USC is gone, but I feel like USC would give the Pac-12 some legitimacy. People will believe it. Where, like, if Utah, you know, they squeak by Florida, for example, and, and they keep winning, I don't know. Like, they're, they're up there, they would probably be, like, five or six and maybe not crack the top four for the playoff aspect, but if USC's in that same spot without a win over, like, an SEC team early in the season, I think they'll get the benefit of the doubt, and they'll get up there and they'll, they'll move up more, so... Yeah, I think the Pac-12 took one on the chin with Utah and Oregon. But the nation, I think, is ready for USC to be good again. And, you know, they will not if, – if USC keeps winning, um, I don't I don't think the Pac-12 would, would hurt that. So they sort of like certain brands, and USC is one of those brands. If they can believe – you know, they know Lincoln Riley's gone to class. They know he's won Heisman trophies. So he's got a believable story to go along with all that USC tradition. So I, I think the Pac-12 can kind of save itself. But it's probably not going to be Oregon State if they keep winning. It's, it's probably not going to be Washington if they keep winning. It kind of needs to have to be USC. Do you think when USC and UCLA, to a lesser extent, inevitably leave the conference, what is the Pac-12? Well, I think the expanded playoff will help because it gives Oregon and Washington and even like the Arizona schools, Utah and Colorado, um, 
you know, a seat at the table. It's not just going to be about at-large teams. Um, I was kind of surprised, honestly, they're going to do six, um, you know, conference winners because you're essentially saying, I mean, that's got to be something from the SEC and the Big Ten to say, we want the other conferences to kind of stay alive. So, to me, I, I think that expansion stuff is probably going to slow down, if not stop completely. Um, Notre Dame, I don't think it really has much of a reason to go unless the money's just not going to be there being independent more, but I think it will be. And then I think for the Pac-12 Pac to two Pac-10, they have decent options if they can become stable. And I think the expanded playoff will make them stable. You have a, you know, like a team like Gonzaga is good in basketball because they, they can make the, you know, they don't need to be in a big conference and they can still win a championship. And I feel like if you don't think if there's the big two conferences and then the other three, you don't mind being in the other three because you can still win a title. So I, I think it's going to help the Pac-12. And then the, the decision will be, are you going to add like a San Diego State or Boise State or Fresno State or whatever and, and kind of go from there. I kind of think they will maybe go back to 12. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like the Pac-12 was on, there's some life support for sure when USC and UCLA left. I don't think they're going to get back to that level just without those two brands. But I think you can still be a viable conference, get a decent TV contract, keep Oregon and Washington happy, keep the mountain schools and the, and the Arizona schools happy, and have a, you know, and, and have a good conference again. But it's it's just not going to be the same without USC and UCLA. But you can, you can keep things afloat, you know, but keep the lights on because you have that, the college football playoff expanded and, and essentially said, hey, Pac-12, hey, Big 12, you guys are going to have a seat at the table. So I think that's going to save, save the conference from at least dying. How did you feel when you initially heard the news and just like from people you're around who are fans of the USC program? I, mean, I was shocked like everybody. We were at the Elite 11, me and one of my writers, which is a, a quarterback camp, a national quarterback camp. USC had a quarterback there, Malachi Nelson, and we were filming him. It was early in the morning, I think like on Thursday or something. Um, my writer looks at his phone and goes, John Butler just reported that the USC and UCLA are leaving for the Big Ten. And we're like, there's no way. That's got to be fake. And like, it's not fake. Like, uh-oh. So we basically dropped what we were doing. And uh, it just happened to be like a mile from my studio. And we went right into the studio and started recording and doing emergency podcasts and everything. Um, initially, there was a lot of pushback from USC fans. And uh, I didn't feel that way. I was like, I thought USC should look at doing something like this for a long time because the Pac-12 is just, you know, it's been like, a, it's like subsidies, you know, it's like they're like, it's, USC was basically subsidizing the rest of the Pac-12, you know, a huge chunk of the TV deals coming from the LA market and all that. And I thought USC should at least explore going someplace else where they could get a better deal in the conference. They took it one step further instead of even threatening to go, they just left. So I thought it was going to be the, the right thing to do from the beginning. But it was mixed with the fans. Um, and I think more USC fans have come along. Uh, it's become more and more popular. I think it's still controversial over at UCLA. And there's some there's some old-time USC fans that hate it. But it's a, they're the minority. Like, I think that most of the USC fans that we talk to, that we see, they realize, like, if you want to try to win a championship and you're making, like, a third of what Ohio State or Alabama or Georgia makes, like, how are you going to make up that gap? You're already far behind. The only way to really get on that level is to join one of those conferences and, and 
make that kind of money and have as many analysts as they have and the better facilities. And once, you know, at some point, players going to get played, paid by the schools probably. And you're getting a bigger TV contract that's going to help you do that. So I feel like the USC fans really want to try to win a championship again. And knowing that the Pac-12 probably wasn't going to be the place to do it. So I, I think they've moved along and have adapted it mostly. UCLA is a little bit different story. They're still a mixed bag. It's a, you know, they want championships in basketball more than anything. They're not really aspiring to win a football championship. They like it, but USC is aspiring to win football championships. I think they realize this was the only way to get it done. Do you think, when, when did you kind of for yourself, because you mentioned, right, you kind of were like, maybe they should look around at other options. When for you was kind of that moment, that light bulb moment for you, and you're like, uh, maybe the USC, USC has outgrown the Pac-12? It's been years. Uh, I've been an advocate for USC at least exploring, going independent. And I think the way the, the, way the sports evolved, the independence route, it wasn't going to be as, it just wasn't going to be as lucrative and feasible, but the joining another conference was, you know, and I feel like that's sort of where USC's had to go. But I've, I've been talking about that for years. Just, I mean, there just wasn't the support. Like, if, if you're a blue blood program like USC, you know, you're Alabama and the SEC. Like, if the NCAA is trying to come down on Alabama, like, the SEC is behind them. Like, they're going to try to help, you know, if they can. Um, they're not going to actively go out and hurt their programs, their their top programs, because you want to try to help Vanderbilt or Mississippi State. The Pac-12 was pretty much actively doing that. Like even the Pete Carroll era, USC was not only the most penalized team in the conference. Every week, their opponent was the least penalized team. And if you talk to a stats guy, that's impossible. But that's the Pac-12 trying to level the playing field. And when you know, we asked Larry Scott. Would you rather have a team make the playoff or would you rather have parity? And he said parity. That's what the Pac-12 was going after. So if you're the team, you're the program that's trying to win a championship, you're, it's hurting you to be in a conference that would rather have parity than have, you know, winners. The Big Ten's not going to do anything to get in Ohio State's way. You know, you don't have to help Ohio State. Just don't get in their way. And the Pac-12 would constantly do that. Either it would be you know, Oregon would get to play their rival Washington on the road with Washington off a bye and Oregon coming off a short week. Like, they would do stuff like that all the time. Um, so Stanford would have an advantage over Washington one week and then Oregon would have an advantage, you know, Washington would have an advantage over Oregon the next week. You would, you would just kind of cannibalize yourself because you're trying to make parity and, like, make everybody happy. And, like, hey, we want Oregon State to win. Even the way they set up the schedule in the Pac-12, uh, you know, not having the North and the, the you know, not having like Cal and Stanford in the South with the, the California, the LA schools, you're having USC and Stanford play week two every year just because both of those teams happen to play Notre Dame, and that's the only way you were going to make the schedule work. That's, that stuff doesn't make any sense. That, you know, when USC and Stanford were both like top 10 teams and you're making them play in week two, it does, it's just stuff like that was just bush league by the Pac 12. So, that's why it started for years ago, that if you want to be serious about a championship, the Pac-12 isn't serious about that. They're, they're more about Olympic sports and all that kind of stuff, which is great. But it's going to be really hard to compete with Ohio State and Alabama when the Pac-12 is actively hurting you and you're, you know, and USA hurt themselves plenty. Like, they just hired bad coaches. They, 
helps more than the Pac-12 did. But the Pac-12 didn't help either. And so if you do go around and hire a really good coach like Lincoln Riley, you're going to have a better chance winning in the Big Ten than I think you would in the Pac-12. Do you think that things could have been different if maybe there was different leadership in the Pac-12? Oh, yeah. Larry Scott was terrible. Um, <laughs> and they extended him. And the problem is there was a lot of – he was bad. Uh, he took care of himself more than anything. And, you know, spent money like it was going out of style. He spent money like he was the SEC when they weren't the SEC. And I feel like – the president's enabled it too. Like Michael Crow at Arizona State was his, you know, kept him around longer than he should have. Like really bad decisions were made. And it wasn't just Larry Scott, the presidents of the universities did as well. And maybe they bought the Kool-Aid that, that he was selling, but you know, taking the Pac-12 network and splitting it, you know, having seven networks, you want, you want cable providers to pick all those up. You want DirecTV to pick all that up. No, like it, that just wasn't, feasible. You want to own it yourself instead of working with an existing partner like Fox or ESPN. That model worked great for the SEC in the Big Ten. Larry Scott's model of owning it 100% and they said, don't worry, in the future this is going to help us. It didn't. It hasn't. It was the wrong choice. Uh, they just made so many bad decisions. But yeah, like having better leadership. They had pretty bad leadership before he got there. He made some good decisions, I think, early on. But then it just got, it just went off the rails and he just kept kind of taking care of himself more than doing what was best for the league and that really hurt that really hurt the Pac-12 do you think any other teams will join USC and UCLA in the Big Ten I think right now probably not um, it, it just <clears throat> with the expansion if you're like Purdue or Minnesota or even like a Wisconsin or Michigan State you could you got a shot at making the playoff by being like the third team in the Big Ten if you like add like Oregon and Washington, all you do is just muddy up the water even more. You know, there's just more more bodies for you to sift through to try to get to one of those coveted playoff spots. So I don't think you're going to get a lot of support from the presidents of you know the chancellors and presidents in the Big Ten of those middle of the road teams to bring in another like slightly better middle of the road team from you know bringing like an Oregon or Washington or something. Because they're not going to, you're going to make less money by bringing Oregon and Washington in. And you're going to have two more competitors that if you're like, you're Purdue, you're Illinois, you're North, like, these are better football programs than yours. So you're getting pushed down and you're making less money. So I don't think you're going to see a lot of support for expanding more outside of maybe like Notre Dame. Um, Notre Dame, you would take at any time. Anyone else? I don't think the ACC teams are going anywhere. I don't think there's anyone in the Big 12 you would want. Really, it's just Oregon and Washington, and I, I don't think I don't think you're gonna get like full support from the Big Ten just because it doesn't help them financially and it just kind of muddies up the waters more. What matchups are you looking forward to when USC enters the Big Ten? So many. I mean, I've been to the, the shoe, so I've seen USC. They actually beat Ohio State back in like 2009, like Matt Barkley's first year. And, that was a lot of fun, but I've never been to the big house. I think that would be great. I've seen Michigan play at USC, but that's been in the Rose Bowl. Um, you know, that was good. I, you know, uh, going to, like, Camp Randall and Wisconsin. I've seen Wisconsin play, but, you know, that was in the Rose Bowl or at the, uh, at the Holiday Bowl against USC. But I've never been to Camp Randall. Like, that would be fun. You know, seeing, like, a whiteout at Penn State. 
some of the, I mean, there's so many good, you know, I've seen USC play Penn State, but in the Coliseum or at a neutral site, never in, in Happy Valley. So, you know, a bunch of those games, um, I think would be awesome to, to see and over time, you know, and even like, you know, go to Chicago and see them play Northwestern or go to East Lansing and see play, you know, Michigan State. You know, I, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of really good ones I want to see, but they'll, it's, it's hard to even fathom that that's going to be happening, but it, it's crazy that it is. Next year will be more real because they'll announce the schedules and everything as far as, like, how are they going to re, you know, realign stuff. Uh, the Pac-12 might do things differently. Um, once we find out the schedules, I think that's going to be pretty cool. Are you a fan of uh, playoff expansion? I like it. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, there's some people that, just really hate it. And I don't quite get it, but I, I like the, the opportunity to come in and, and, uh, and win. I, and I think the, the 12 works, which I didn't like it when it initially came out, but you know, those top four teams, a lot of the times the top two, three, they're just like better than everybody. And so if you had like eight playing one, like it's probably just going to be a, you know, bloodbath, but you know, having, a bunch of those teams from 12 to 5, those could all be really good games, you know? And sometimes it's that, you know, that like an Oklahoma or something that just fell short of their conference championship game, but they're still a really good team, and maybe they're like the 11th seed, but do you want to play them as the 6th the seed? Like, probably not, you know? Um, so I think there's going to be some really good first-round games that are going to be on college campuses which is great. I'd love to see the second round games on college campuses too. Um, but, and then, you know, like it could be a weeding out process. Like instead of Alabama playing a team that, you know, may or may not be pretty good. Maybe they're on the not as pretty good side and Alabama just kills them. But if they get the team that's most likely pretty good, because they just won a game in the playoffs, you know, maybe that's going to be a better game. So I, I like it. I think it's, a, you know, expand the playoffs. I don't think it's going to, hurt the regular season. Everyone said the 14 playoff was going to kill college football. It's just made it better. I think the 12 team playoff is going to make it better too. So here's my reason why I've always not been a fan of expansion. I, I think, and I get everything you're saying. I do think it's really great to have these games on college campuses. The more teams that can say they're in the playoffs, I think that's good for each individual team in terms of recruiting. I, I think it's, it makes us feel like there's more parity. So I think, and, and potentially more good games, especially in the earlier rounds. And also, I think it gets rid of, like, the whole bowl issue where uh, you have players who are, like, trying to go to the NFL draft, and then they're not playing, and they're sitting out in bowl games. It kind of eliminates that as well. So I think it does a lot of things. But I think at the end of the day, the whole point of a playoff system is, like, to determine who's, like, the best team. And I don't know if adding more teams than four really necessarily gets the job done. I think there's probably in a given year two to three teams who have a realistic chance, and I think most of the time those teams get in. So I, I I guess that's my thing where I don't see I, I don't think it changes anything that that's how but I don't think it really changes anything in the grand scheme yeah. of uh, who wins. Yeah. Yeah, I mean we'll see. It's uh, I'm excited for it. We'll see how fast it happens, and it's a sport that's changing. You know, it's it's a completely different sport than it was five years ago. There's so much is different. Um, so I think as change has been happening so much. People are going to adapt to this change in the postseason format, but I don't know. It, you hope it's a good thing for the sport because there's so many. The conferences run so much and they're so powerful, but they're usually making decisions that are in the best interest of the conference, 
their own conference and not the best engine of the sport. This one, it looks like they might have said, let's help the sport out and let's put those six automatic bids in there. Because the Big Ten doesn't need that and the SEC doesn't need that. But the Pac-12 and the Big 12 and the ACC, they needed that. So maybe it's a good sign that, yeah, if you're, even if you don't like it, at least the decision was made knowing that the power brokers tried to take the best thing, you know, what's best for college football into consideration instead of just what's best for us. So maybe that's a positive sign. So you're a Heisman voter. Uh, what kind of criteria do you go for uh when you're casting your Heisman ballot? So I like to, I mean, it's very regional. Um, if at all possible, I like to include someone from my region on the ballot. You know, even if it's a third, you get three three spots. I think I'm pretty good at predicting who the, or not predicting, just voting, you know, voting for who the winner is. Um, I don't like it just to be like, hey, you're the quarterback on the best team. And I don't mind having defensive players, but you can't, I, I think sometimes... You put defensive players on there who aren't, um, they're just, you know, they got a name, but they're not necessarily productive. Like, I think, like, um, like Manti Teo, he had that documentary recently. He was a great linebacker and everything, but he didn't have, like, a bunch of sacks or interceptions or fumbles. It was just like, oh, he got a bunch of tackles every week. And they were like, oh, he's a Heisman finalist. You know, to me, that just wasn't it. Like, if you get, like, a Willie Anderson and they're scoring a bunch of points, you know, they're forcing a bunch of turnovers and, getting a whole bunch of sacks and like you're getting those big numbers which would be like equivalent to touchdowns if you're an offensive player I would consider you know something like that it's hard though you know I think if it was a DB that was returning punts like a you know and, and for, for touchdowns and scoring that way I think you could that could help your case as well but um, really I mean I try to look at the, the schedule like you know who they're playing against and the kind of numbers they're putting up and if, if you know in the big games are you you know, are you throwing for five touchdowns against, uh, you know, Purdue, but then when you play Michigan, it's one touchdown, two picks. But, you know, like, that, you know, i got to count that against them, too. So, I don't know, it's, it's, a lot of it's just the eye test for me and kind of seeing, you know, what some of the numbers are, what they look like, especially in the bigger games, and just kind of go from there. But I try to keep an open mind outside of, if at all possible, have someone on the West Coast on my ballot, <laughs> you know, just, uh, you know, at, at least in one spot. How open-minded would you say the average Heisman voter is? That's like 900-something Heisman voters. So it's all over the place. Um, you know, every former winner gets a vote. So it's funny to talk to, like, I'll run into Matt Leiner to practice or something, and he has a vote because he won the Heisman, you know. Um, and, you know, guys like that. Um, you know, I've talked to, like, Marcus Allen before. Um, so when you get, like, sports writers and, like, former players that won the award, like everyone voting. Um, it's kind of crazy. And it's, uh, I, I think it's all over the place because there's just so many people that vote. And you hope that people are college football fans and they like watch a lot of games and try to, you know, get a, a feel for what's going on. Um, but it, there's so many people, I just think it's all over the place. Would you say that your Heisman voting criteria has changed over the years? much. 
um, you know, they, they have regional, there's regional like coordinators. So the guys will reach out to you when it's time for your vote. So, um, it's, it's, it's always felt like a regional kind of award to me where you're like voting in the region. Um, I don't, I don't think that's changed over the years. What have been some of your favorite Heisman seasons? Oh man. Um, I mean, some of them are guys that didn't even win. Like, uh, like Stanford had a couple, like Christian McCaffrey and Andrew Luck, like guys like that. You're like, man, that would have been, um, you know, kind of great to see. Um, but then, it, I mean, every year I think it's just unique, you know. Um, I mean, I've covered the USC ones. Like back in the day with Carson Palmer was a a good one because I mean I love the, the good stories. Like he wasn't even on the USC media guide when they used to print out media guides. He wasn't on the cover of the media guide the year he won the Heisman. You know, it was his fifth year. They bring in this you know, Norm Child and this new offense and um, they lose a couple games early and then he just goes on a tear and you realize like, wow, he's setting all these records and you know, he has a top 10 matchup against Notre Dame at the end of the season, lights him up, and pretty much wins the Heisman on that. So I, I love those kind of stories. We just kind of follow along and, and see where guys are at. Ryan, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast, man. I appreciate it. Hey, well, thanks for having me on. It was uh, good. I know it took a little while to get the schedule. It's crazy time right now, obviously, you know, in college football. But I, I don't remember being this busy in a long time. It's a good thing. <laughs> But I'm used to covering like a dumpster fire, and now they're actually really good. So we'll see how that could, how long that continues. We're moving up in the world. And once again, I want to thank Ryan for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And I want to thank all of you for tuning into this episode. The 480th episode of Barbershop Sports Talk.